Okay, thank you for joining us for Parshanut and Beyond. We're on Parshat Tzav. Um, and just to situate the Parsha, um, last week we read, uh, we started the book of Vayikra, which contained a lot of details about sacrifices and all the different kinds of sacrifices and what you bring for what kinds of sins, etc. Um, and in this parsha, we're moving more towards the consecration of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, and um, putting in place what needs to happen in order to use the tabernacle on a regular basis. Um, and in this week's section, we're going to look at um, kind of ordaining or establishing or anointing the priests in particular. Um, so let's just launch right into it and read the section that I've selected. Um, maybe do you want to start? Yeah. God spoke to Moshe saying, take Aharon along with his sons and the vestments, the anointing oil, the bull of sin offering, the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble the whole community at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Moshe did as God commanded him and when the community was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting, Moshe said to the community, this is what God has commanded to be done. Then Moshe brought Aharon and his sons forward, and he washed them with water. He put the tunic on him, girded him with the sash, clothed him in the robe, put the ephod on him, girded him with the decorated band with which he tied it to him. He put the breastpiece on him and placed the urim and tumim into the breastpiece. And he set the headdress on his head, and on the headdress in front he put a gold frontlet, the holy diadem, as God had commanded Moshe. Moshe took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it, consecrating them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all its utensils, and the lavar with its stand to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aharon's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Moshe, Moshe, <laughs> away. Moshe then brought Aharon's son forward, sons forward, clothed them in tunics, girded them with sashes, and wound turbans around them, as God had commanded Moshe. Great, thank you. See, if, like, if I had used Hashem in there, then I yeah. would understand if you would have gone towards Moshe. Moshe. But I like uh, Moises. Um, okay, great. So in reading that, what were some questions that you thought of? As you were as you were going through it, for everyone, I have questions. Yeah. Okay. So my first was with the water. Mm -hmm. I just like made me think of um, like like the Islamic tradition of like before you pray, mm -hmm. like washing your feet and your hands. Mm -hmm. And I also I like other other about time, the oil. No, the water because in, in Suk six it says you wash them Great. with water. Great. Mm -hmm. And is I can't think of, like is water used as a I guess like like in terms of like a um, like a mikvah, mm -hmm. this seems kind of different. Right. Or before bread. Right. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that's probably the most similar. Um, the other thing that I was never mind. I forgot my other question. Sorry. No, and then really, you'll come to you. Really aggressive with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious what a diadem is. Oh yeah, they didn't like translate some things. Nezer Hakodesh, is that what it is? So that's, um, I guess that's the Nezer Hakodesh because the Tzitzah Zahav must be the gold frontlet. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you've got it. Yeah, I'm like, holy diamonds. It's just a silly thing. <laughs> um, so, right, so I'm guessing that that's what it corresponds to. Um, but it's some sort of head piece of some sort. Because that whole pasuk seems to be focused on head stuff. Mm -hmm. And the urim and thumim. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, um, so that's referring to the, uh, the gems that are on the breastplate mm -hmm. um, that are supposed to kind of have these um, prophecy type powers. Um, and there are some there are some interpretations that are um, that are really interesting about like how exactly um, the Kohanim need to learn how to interpret things, and it kind of spells out words. It's like a Ouija board, but not. Mm -hmm. It's like 
it's it's really interesting, um, and yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting <coughs> piece of the sacrificial system that like we don't talk that much about. Other questions, like yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if it goes on to talk about this, but the beginning in Pasuk Bet, it talks about um, the Shemna Mishcha and also the Parachatat and Shnei Ha'ewim and Sahamatzot, and then the only thing we see later on is Shemna Mishcha. So it's not clear from this passage what we're doing with the other things. Great. Um, so generally, just why are these things included? And yeah, as as you go on, then it goes through. Yeah. Like how they're all connected. The sacrifice, like going through using each of them. But um, but it's interesting that all of those things are listed yeah. in a particular order. And the Shemana Mishcha is the first one that's listed among those more sacrificial things. And that's the first one we come across. Do you think that all of this is happening? Like the community is outside the tent of meeting at the entrance. And then Moshe is like anointing the altar, so presumably that would be inside the tent, so not everyone can see it. But it seems like they're assembled out there in order to witness something. Great. Um, so what do they get to see? Great. So like realistically, how is this working? Mm -hmm. How is everyone able to see all of these pieces, which presumably they're being gathered there to see? Mm -hmm. Great. Um, also, um, Pasuk Yud. Moses is taking the Shema Mishkan and putting it like all over the Mishkan, but they're like, it's got to be more specific than that. So then it starts going into like each place in the Mishkan that, um, or it starts, then it goes to like, uh, talking about the altar and the utensils and um, putting it on Aharon's head too. But like, does putting it on all of the Mishkan, does that mean there should be also. Um, other places where he's putting the oil. Great. Um, so like to what extent is Moshe using this anointing oil? Is he actually like just like slathering it all over the Mishkan? Um, is it just on the Mishkan and Aharon? Like where else, where else might it be used? Right? I guess also the order. Does it go by the order of the Psukim? Does it go by the order of importance? Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so like is this a chronological right. order, like, or you is put it on the that's just kind of listing it, it on great. Aaron. Right, and also, like, why isn't the Mizbeach included in all the things that are in the Mishkan? <coughs> I think is another is another piece that's that's kind of connected to that. What's and the Mizbeach? The altar. Okay, sorry, sorry in, in, in uh, portion <laughs> And also, like maybe, what's the difference between like the anointing and the sprinkling that happens in um, in verse eleven, and the pouring that happens in verse twelve? Like, what's what are some of the difference between those? Um, I think like with the washing with the water, like we have this act of washing before bread or mikvah, so I understand that. But the anointing is like. I don't really understand, I mean, I, I get it, like from the Psalms, what anointing signifies, but we don't, at least to my knowledge, we don't have an act that calls back to that anointing. Unless Great. I'm missing. Great. No, I think you're right. Messy. It's kind of like this. That's so messy. Yeah. <laughs> you want to do oil first and then water. Right. Like. Yeah. Great. Any other questions before we move on to the next question? Cool. Okay. Um, so just like previous times, uh, we're not going to necessarily go in a thematic order, um, but just we're going to go through each of the mafarshim that I've included on this sheet. Um, and with each of them, think about what is the question that they're trying to answer. Um, what is the either textual difficulty or ideological difficulty? Um, what are they, you know, is it that they're trying to understand what a word means? Are they trying to deal with repetition? Um, what is it exactly that they're trying to address? Um, so, Tamar, do you want to take Rashi? Sure. <coughs> um, for English or Hebrew? Whichever yeah. one you want. Okay. And you can also, like, switch back and forth. Okay. 
Rashi is, and Rashi does this all the time, that he uses Midrash. And I don't, I don't think that's necessarily surreptitiously. Like maybe there's an assumption that everyone knows this Midrash or um, that it's just not really necessary to quote his sources. Um, but it seems like he's picking up on this, um, on this story or this theme um, that's used in, in Midrash. Um, so does this help kind of clarify like what are um, what are Rashi's concerns and also like what are the thematic reasons that we might want to see Aharon this way? Yeah, and it makes sense with the language like kacha is like forceful. It's the like command form. It like, seems like it's being done with force, but it's it's problematic like <laughs> religiously, I guess, or or I don't know. It's problematic that the two situations it's being compared to are situations of basically rape or um, so it's it's very like it has very bad connotations and seems like um, like forceful in a bad way but this is supposed to be to like worship Hashem so like that's problematic great and great. isn't it Vayikach that God says to Abraham to take Isaac yeah so in that sense it God is like right for worshiping God in some yeah. way or like doing God's will um, also in a disturbing way. Right, that, that, right That's also yeah. the problem with like this midrash is that there's so many other times when it says like, like ex- mm-hmm. why is this midrash bringing specifically these? That's a good point. Right. Yeah. yeah, that one almost seems more relevant. Right. Yeah, these are like situations of being taken advantage of and almost enslaved in some like oppressive situation. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think... Some thoughts that I have on this are that um, in some ways maybe there's this desire to kind of parallel Aharon to Moshe in like in humility, right? Like Aharon not wanting this for himself, maybe something like that, or like trying to run away in the way that maybe Jonah does from from the task that, that he has at hand. I'm not so I think I think maybe like there's an attempt to kind of parallel him to Moshe in this way, um, and, but on the other hand, it's also very, um, it's very confusing because there are a lot of people who would love to have this position, such as Korach later in, in Bamibar, where, I mean, also the word Vayikach is used with Korach, I, so I don't know if that's also at play here in this Midrash, like Vayikach Korach, and then he tries to demonstrate that he's worthy of the, of the Keuna, of the priesthood. Um, but um, but I did also just want to kind of bring that out as a way to kind of situate Rashi as well. Um, so any other thoughts on that before we get back to Rashi? I'm, I'm curious, I'm still curious <coughs> as to why like, Aharon didn't want it. Like, if it was out of humility, that's really different from like him not wanting this position at all, you know, like having other reasons to not want the position and them still making him do it. So what are what are some thoughts that people have about that? Well, there's also a lot of other ways in the Torah or Tanakh that humility is shown. Like, in the, like I think in more positive ways. Like with Moshe, he's like, who am I to do this? Mm-hmm. And I mean, we don't see that kind of like exchange or like, you know, maybe someone else should do it or not me. We don't even hear Aharon's voice. Right? We don't we don't um, have Aharon directly. Right. And also, I don't know who is um, is it Moshe who's supposed to take him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So like again, like is the kacha Aharon is that talking about Moshe or talking about Aharon? Like maybe it's saying something more about Moshe being like a leader and like taking the responsibility. Like this places Moshe above Aharon in like a hierarchical st- structure, Great. right? That he has the ability to take him. Mm-hmm. Great. So maybe part of it is like to demonstrate that, um, like Tamara is saying, like to. Um, to demonstrate just kind of the hierarchy of um, of Moshe being over Aharon, but so yeah, there's still these like lingering questions about why wouldn't Aharon want this? Um, I don't know. Maybe because no one had had it before, like it wasn't yet seen as a glamorous position. Um, yeah, and also, I mean, it could it could also come back to conversations that we'd had in previous weeks about. Um, about his maybe 
deeper seated feelings about um, the repercussions of Chet Ha'egel and his involvement of it and like maybe not feeling worthy because of that. Maybe that's another option. Um, Um, and so, okay, so the next piece in Rashi, I think, really comes back to Mimi's initial question about mm. how does this work realistically, mm -hmm. right? Like, how are all these people able to fit? It doesn't quite get to your question of... What are they seeing? Right. Yeah. Like, how can they actually see things? But it does um, get at the question that I think, I think Rashi is asking of how are how is this physical space able to accommodate these people? Mm -hmm. um, and on Zehadabar, this is what, um, so what are, what are the things that you think Rashi is trying to address here? Are we supposed to be familiar with other times when small areas accommodate a large number of people? Do you think? I'm not sure because it's phrased in such a way like mm -hmm. the phrase that's used is like this is one of the places mm -hmm. um, and um, so so I think that it's possible but mm -hmm. I don't I don't know like maybe there's another Midrash sitting out there that also like mm -hmm. lays out all of the places where many people were um, were able to be in a smaller space um, yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah. But it does, like, you're right. It's I think phrased that, that the way. phrase mm -hmm. feels like it's kind of introducing a whole series of sections on areas that were too small for too many people. Um, and this, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, no, go ahead. This Zahadavar might um, shed more light on the Kachaharon, <laughs> because. Like, why might he be resisting? He might be resisting so that the community won't think that he got the position just because he's Moshe's brother. And mm -hmm. so to reassert, so that's the resistance. Mm -hmm. And then Moshe's supposed to take him anyway and then reassure the, the community, um, you know, look how he resisted. Um, this is not, like, because I wanted it for, or my brother wanted it. This is um, God's fault. Great. Great. Um... And and it seems like that's also um, that's also getting at a question that we didn't uh, that we didn't quite ask at the beginning, but um, the whole repetition of Kasher Tzibah Hashem et Moshe, like as God as God commanded Moshe, as God commanded Moshe, that comes up many times in this, and and later on in the in in this chapter as well. Um, that why, so why is Moshe emphasizing this? Why is it emphasized within the Torah? And it could be that you don't want there to be this, there's, um, there's kind of this um, elephant in the room of nepotism. Um, and, and it seems like maybe that, that emphasis and re-emphasis of that phrase, that this is what God wanted, this is not what I wanted, as Moshe, this is not what I wanted as Aharon. This is, um, this is just the way that it was supposed to be. Um, great. And any thoughts on the last piece, which also kind of gets at the question that Tamara was asking earlier about, like, how does this whole anointing thing work? It feels very specific. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Eyelids <laughs> and you know from that? one finger to the, like, mm -hmm. yeah, like, how do they know? Doesn't yeah, get it doesn't eyes. make any sense to us, but I think it might just be this is like different time, different place, different customs. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It feels, it also in some ways like feels kind of like Ash Wednesday y. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I'm not sure how. Oh, yeah. Oh, is it? Oh, like Simba. Simba. Yeah. <laughs> it's Simba. Which I don't think Rashi was familiar with, but <laughs> and I don't know to what extent Ash Wednesday existed in 11th century Provence, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, it's just uh, just interesting, and I think that one of the things that he's picking up on is what is the difference between Vayitzok and Vayimshach, um, 
you know, how do you differentiate between this pouring and the anointing? Like, is an anointing just pouring? And it seems mm -hmm. like he no, thinks that's something very specific. Makes sense. Um, and I'm not sure if also, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, I'm not sure if, so in the Hebrew, it says, umoshech and he drew it with his finger from one eyelid to the other. So I'm not sure if there's kind of, if he's assuming that there's kind of an interchangeability of the chet and the chaf, and that's what limshoch means, um, because that's the word that's used for anointing, vayimshach. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure if he's also picking up on that. It seems like he is, because if you look at the parallel, b'tchila yotzek, so he's, he's making a, he's using the vayitzak and changing the form yotzek, mm -hmm. al rosho, and then the same structure seems to continue into the next section. Umoshech betzbao. So I think he is saying that the chet and chaf are interchangeable. Cool. Or that at least that's, that's a, yeah. like, that's not like a far out, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, nice. That that's, that's like how it's set up within, um, within his commentary itself. Um, great. Okay, so let's move on to Ibn Ezra, which should be a quick one, um, where he, his question is, I mean, I don't know if, and so I'll read it first, the whole community, the heads of the tribes and the elders. So in some ways, this doesn't really feel like an intuitive reading because the, I wouldn't expect the whole community, but Kol Haida to be a select part of the community. It's the leaders of the community. Exactly. And so, but maybe the question that he's trying to address is kind of, he's presenting an alternative to the Midrashic answer, which mm -hmm. is the space expanded and was able to accommodate the entire community. Um, but he feels like maybe this is a re more realistic. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe also it's maybe what he's trying to say is that it's important for these people to see the anointing of Aharon and his sons because they might think that they would be the next in line to be the priests. I'm not sure. Um, but, but it seems kind of out there, for, especially for Ibn Ezra, because he tends to be, um, he tends to care a lot about language and picks up on the nuances of the words a lot. And I would expect him to be like all over that kol haida. Um, but I don't know, I can't really account for it. Um, Okay, so let's move on to Ramban. Um, maybe, do you want to go for it? Yeah. Take Aharon. This section occurred seven days prior to the establishment of the tabernacle, as scripture does not always follow chronological order. These are Rashi, this is Rashi's commentary, but why would re we reorder God's living word? But it is correct what, he has, what was said. He was commanded about the establishment of the tabernacle on the 23rd of Adar, and he established it. And once the tabernacle was standing, God called to him and commanded him about the sacrifices, and everything from Vayikra until here, for he wanted to teach him all about the sacrifices and their rules before sacrificing. And only afterwards he said to him, take Aharon along with his sons. Great. Um, so let's stop there for now. Um, and as you can see, he's really giving Rashi some pushback on his insistence that this really occurred before the establishment of the Mishkan. Um, and Ramban seems to be pretty pretty insistent in emphasizing that it's in exactly the order that it lays out in, in the Torah itself, that first you have the establishment of the Mishkan, then you need to lay out all of the korbanot, all the sacrifices, and um, be commanded on exactly how that operates, and only after that, then you have all the stuff about the about the priests and and anointing them. Um, so, why do you think that Ramban differs from Rashi in this way? And he makes a good point of like, why would the Torah tell it in this order if it was not how it happened? But I think when we we're talking about Rashi, like we, didn't we say that that has happened? Like we've seen that happen before. Like the golden calf incident was at the wrong time as well, right? Right. So that's what that's what Rashi was. Rashi, yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, um, go on. Just a quick question: Is Ramban was Ramban the grandson of? 
thinking of Rush Baum. Rush Baum. Okay, wait, what? So there's no. Wait, who's the grandson of who? Rush Baum is the grandson of Rashi. Okay. All right. Is is okay? I'm a, I'm okay, I'm just asking. Again. Is Ramban like? Doesn't he often disagree with Rashi? Isn't it yeah. like, kind of part of his like larger discourse is to like question what Rashi said? He he also he questions does. a lot of other people, but yeah. definitely Rashi very frequently. Yeah. Um, so like he also might just be like, you know, not like you know, well it can't be this. So I must give, there must be another for the sake of argument. Like or is it, yeah, or just that like it's it's not. Not that, um, like, what he decided to push back on Rashi, you know, like, that's really interesting, but, like, it's not so surprising that he would find something with Rashi's argument that he doesn't agree with. Great. So a couple of options we have so far is that he's a strict textualist, right, like Ellie, Ellie was saying, um, and another is just that he's a combative kind of guy, or, like, you know, he's, like it's part of his, um, it's part of his method and it's part of his style to push back on commentators and Rashi in particular. Great. I also wonder though, I mean, if we're saying that the Ramban is saying, okay, you built the tabernacle, now I'm gonna insert all of these teachings about what sacrifices should look like, and then we're gonna instate Aharon as head priest, then that would say that the teaching about the sacrifices is just to Moshe, and then we're entrusting Moshe to teach Aharon and his sons once they become priests. But if, like Rashi is saying, we install them as priests, then we um, consecrate the tabernacle so that it can be ready for the sacrifices that come right after the consecration of the tabernacle, then we're giving Aharon the power from the beginning mm -hmm. of the sacrificial process, the educational process around mm -hmm. sacrifices. Um, Which is a more empowering model. Right, right. And to push back on that, if we're worried, if we're going back to Kaha Aharon, if we're trying to show the community that Aharon is not taking this position upon himself, but that these words are coming from God, which is emphasized earlier, then maybe it would be more important to give the laws of sacrifice before, so that it's clear that the laws of sacrifice are coming straight from God, and that Aharon is only appointed after, and that he's only a figurehead carrying out the sacrifices that come from God. So some differing positions on what the, um, what the symbolic meaning of giving, um, of giving the rules of all the sacrifices are. And, and it seems like that's really kind of a third position to take on Ramban, that he thinks that it's really important that before you can instate the Kohanim, they need to understand the Korbanot system, whether it's first given to Moshe mm -hmm. and then maybe taught to them. Mm -hmm. um, but that seems to be what um, what he's emphasizing here, right? For he wanted to teach him about all the sacrifices and the rules before sacrificing. Mm -hmm. um, that um, because as soon as they're going to be instated or anointed, they've got to be put to work. Mm -hmm. So they need to understand it. They need to have this all under their belts. Or girds or sashes. <laughs> sashes. They need to a have foods. it under their <laughs> aphods and their diadems. Um, Great. So let's so let's keep going. Tomorrow, do you want to take the rest of Ramban? Sure. I'll go English because it's long. <laughs> um, and he washed them with water. Mm -hmm. Scripture says that he washed all of them, but they were not all washed as one. Rather, he washed Aaron and dressed him in his vestments and anointed him. Then he washed his sons and dressed them, and anointed him to consecrate him. Anointing the sons was not mentioned here, for it is known that he anointed them as he did their father, as he was commanded and anoint them as you anointed their father, which is included in what it was said about the sons, as God commanded Moshe. And it seems to me that the sons' anointing was not by pouring oil on their heads, for that was only said with Aharon, and pour on his head and anoint him. And anointing the sons wasn't mentioned there at all, for it was not through pouring like it was for Aharon. It is likely that the sons had no other anointing other than the sprinkling from the consecration oil on the sons and their vestments. So it seems like in both of these, even though he's commenting on different pieces of the, um, of the passage, that he's kind of picking up on the separation between washing and anointing Aharon and washing and anointing the sons. Um, 
and so what are and, and so especially what he's picking up on is in the language of the psukim, otam bamaim. He washed them, and then everything else in all the preparations in dressing and in anointing, it's all in the singular. Um, and first it's aharon, and then you deal with the sons. Um, so any any thoughts on that on that particular question or on what Ramban has to say about it? Honestly, I think it would have been easier for him to just say that the sons weren't anointed, just like from a textual point of view, <laughs> and to just say they were both washed. But we know that it's just Aharon who was anointed because it's in the singular. Great. So he kind of he's making a more difficult argument. I wonder what's the um, motive behind right. even bringing the sons into the consecration. Right. Maybe his view of like what their role is in the Mishkan in general that. It would be upset. Uh, it wouldn't make sense with his view of the Mishkan that they wouldn't be anointed for the work mm-hmm. that they're doing. Right. And why is it so important for Ramban that there be like some sort of anointing ritual for the sons? Um, and something that we're missing. So later on in this in this chapter, um, there is a as Ramban says, there's kind of a sprinkling of the sons with the oil. Um, but again, you know, Tamar's question is still very relevant. Like, why does Ramban see the need to kind of um, paint that as being anointing as opposed to some other ritual? Great. Um, any other thoughts on that before we move on to Fiskuni? I just can't get out of my head, like, the um, installing of the new pope. Mm. With all of these, yeah, like, it's so yeah, timely. It's, and he <laughs> totally has a diadem, you know. That's right. Um, yeah, and just all of the like. See a sash. Yeah, underneath he has a robe on top of it. Cool. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's so a lot of the same thing. Tuning, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure if they could figure it out, they would want him to have some. It's such a very interesting. I wonder what the history of like the Pope's outfit is. Mm-hmm. And maybe it is biblical. Like it could very yeah. well be that it is. Yeah. That there's some sort of biblical. <laughs> I'm sure um, there's like some anointing that goes on too. Probably. I wouldn't be surprised. Right. Or at least with water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, no, good point. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe I didn't. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm just not really into the whole. I don't know. It's it's Hopefully. cool. It's cool, but I'm not. I think some people are just really into it. Um, but yeah. Anyway. Um, okay, so let's move on to the Chizkuni. What are we up to? Immediately. Okay, great. And he anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it. Every utensil on its own, but Aharon and his sons were anointed with their vestments at once. Great. So, so the oil was, they were already dressed when this happened, when all the oil was being poured on them. Great. So, this is ruining this all sounds their so, clothing. It sounds, it sounds so messy. messy. Right. But they were in the desert, it wasn't like handling. Like, so, I mean, just, uh, I don't fully understand why it's so important for the Chizkuni for, to, to point out that the, well, no, I think maybe, maybe I have a sense of why, but, um, like, why is it so important for him that the clothing and the koanim are anointed together as opposed to separately, um, and why it's important for him to point that out, and I think it's possible that he kind of wants to show, you know, lest you think that the clothing has holiness on its own, um, and that basically, like, anyone could put on the clothing and then um, and then essentially be a Kohen or function as a Kohen um, goes to show that really the Kohanim are the ones who make the vestments holy or make them sacred in some way. Um, so maybe that's what he's getting at. I'm not sure. I was just thinking of the, the whole idea that like, like until you make, uh, this might be a silly thing, but until you like make challah three times in your wedding ring, you can't wash with it. Is that maybe making that up? Have you okay? Wait, what is? Okay, that? so I heard <laughs> that like you're not supposed to when you like wash wash your hands before a meal, you're not supposed to wear rings, and I think you not like this kind of ring, but like wedding ring. But if you're female and you make challah in in that ring three times, then it's like becomes part of you. You can like 
wash with the rayon. Hmm. Nope, no, I never heard that. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I always take the spring off whenever I wash, just as like not. Yeah, I don't know. No, I think that's the that's the customary thing to do, like so that there isn't any separation between your hands and the water. Um, And yeah, there's also some custom of like baking rings in the challah, or is that I don't know. Or maybe my mom did that by mistake once, and, and now I've it's interpreted custom. it to be a custom. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure she did that. Um, okay, great. So do you want to also take the rikanati? And he sprinkled from it seven times on the altar. We already know the secret of the sevens from the seven days of creation. So this is a lesser-known commentator. It's Rabbi Menachem Rikanati, and he has more of a, as you might guess, a more mystical and Kabbalistic view, um, all these all these secrets of the sevens. Um, so, any any thoughts on this? On reasons to parallel this to creation or mm. anything else? I just thought it would be an interesting perspective to include on what was mo- what's mostly been like a pretty textual mm. analysis. Okay, cool. So let's move on to Abravanel. Um, oh, I, yeah, I mean, there's just like a whole thing about the um, the creation of the Mishkan, like being parallel to the creation of the world. Yeah. So um, maybe it's like even another like, in, within the Mishkan, like the altar specifically. Um, we're equating that also with creation, so it could be another level in this um, symbolic creationism that continues into the Mishkan. Great. Um, so nice. that it's um, great. So something that we saw well that, I don't know if we talked about in, in the class and the parallels to, to creation with the building of the Mishkan and for example you know, at the end of creation there is Vayichulu Hashemayim Ve'aretz and at the end of building of the Mishkan there's Kasher Kila Moshe and so it's um, you know, using so lots of examples of those types of things of using similar words and similar setups. Um, so just kind of a continuation of that. That's great. Um, okay, great. So let's move on to Bravanel. Um, so ordinarily, a Bravanel starts out with a list of like twenty-seven questions at the beginning of the parsha. Um, so this is kind of the the middle piece of him addressing some of those questions. Um, okay, so the bridges, is it bridges or breaches? I realized as I, after I had already printed these out, like pants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it bridges or breaches? I, I think it's like where you're from determines okay. how you say it. Yeah. Oh no, just like is it spelled with it? Is I it E? Awesome. Oh. I don't know. I feel like I've right. seen both. Anyway, yeah. so the pants were not mentioned here, <coughs> lest one think that Aharon was naked, for they were always on him, so it wasn't necessary to dress him in them now. So I think with this, Abravanel is just getting at, like, okay, so Aharon is also supposed to be wearing pants, like, where is pants? Is he not wearing pants? Pants are included <laughs> in, like, the whole list of, um, of clothing that he's supposed to be wearing. Um, so anyway, where are they? No, he's wearing them, so he's not, he's not naked, don't worry. Um, Moshe did not anoint the tabernacle prior to dressing Aharon and his sons because God commanded him in the matter of the oil and anoint it with the tent of meeting, etc. And then, and anoint Aharon and his sons. Therefore, he dressed Aharon first to anoint him immediately after anointing the tabernacle, such that there was no break, in, in the Hebrew, mm-hmm. uh, between the anointing of the tabernacle and anointing Aharon. It would have been proper to anoint Aharon and his sons together to hasten the anointing of the tabernacle, but it was enough for the high priest to be prepared properly to do the holy work on that day in order to anoint Aharon alone. Um, So it seems like the question that he's addressing here is, again, why this separation between Aharon and his sons? Why not do them all together? Um, And it seems like the answer that he's giving is that he wants there to be kind of a fluid, like a flow between anointing the Mishkan and anointing Aharon, um, and this was the best way to do it, to minimize hefsek, to minimize a break in between. 
Um, any other thoughts? That's on just that? cool because yeah. there's also the idea of <coughs> have sex when you pray, which is um, like just like a nice parallel because it's all supposed to be like mm-hmm. prayer replacing the korban mm-hmm. and things that happen in the Mishkan. Great, great. Um, so, like in like before the Amidah, like having having the peace right before the Amidah, some like right. Um, you know, adjacent to or just opposed to the piece before, um, of the like the beginning of the Amidah, and great. So, like because there's also this tradition of um, of the sacrifices being parallel to Tefillah. There's this continuing, um, like it's it starts with with the sacrifices and carries out carries on through the um, through prayers. Great. Um, do you want to take the Rosh? And just to like as as an introductory thing, I had never um, I had never seen this as a commentary on the Torah um, because he was much more of a Talmudist and known much more for his halachic work. And so I wonder, and like just based on his Wikipedia, the Wikipedia page of the Rosh, like it doesn't list his Torah commentary as being. I don't know this this I just found this on um, on the Bar Ilan responsa. So I wonder if it's there's some, there's some um, wrongful attribution there, mm. or what's what exactly is going on? But not that I um, will trust Wikipedia 100% to you know tell me all the works of the Rosh. Mm. But anyway, go ahead. And the whole congregation was assembled to the tent to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Moshe said, "Where?" And God said, "At the entrance <laughs> of the tent of meeting." Moshe responded. Master of the universe, can 60 myriad adults and 60 myriad youths stand in a place that can only hold 200 seah? God said, this astonishes you? The heavens were only the size of a withered spot in the eye, and I expanded them from one end of the world to the other. And in the future, the entire population from Adam to the dead who will be made living, where will they stand? They are going to say, this place is too narrow for me. Accommodate me so that I may sit. What will I do for them? I will expand the area for them, as it says, enlarge the site of your tent from Isaiah. Thus, I will expand the area for them. Great. That's cool. Um, so this is, again, so this is also based on Amidrash. He's bringing this from there. Um, and and I especially chose this as opposed to the Amidrash because he actually says it much better and much more concisely. Um, but anyway, but he's getting at the question of how can they physically all fit there. Um, and still he isn't fully getting at the how can they all physically see everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not entirely satisfactory. Um, but any other thoughts? Yeah. Myriad? Is that like 100,000? Like what, is that a unit of measurement? Or um, is that, so it's, what's yeah, the it's Hebrew? a number. Rabu is the, um, so the Reish Bet Vav Aleph. And so I, I think that it's a specific it's number. Like I don't remember if it's like a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. It's like something, something Eight. thousands, <laughs> um, but generally is translated as, or at least I've seen it translated as myriad. Mm-hmm. So that's how I translated it. So it's, it's interesting to have like 60, mir- like, you know, like a number and then myriad. Like <laughs> right. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think you're right that it comes from rather that it's a lot. Um, okay, great. So let's, so the very last piece isn't really a commentary, but is kind of gives us a broader sense of um, anointing generally. Um, so Jacob Milgram was a, I think he passed away maybe not so long ago, like a year or two ago, um, and was a Bible scholar and specifically focused on Vaikra, loved Vaikra, um, which is great for us because that's great to have a resource that's very rich on Vaikra. Um, and he's also very helpful in providing um, historical context. Um, and do we have time to read through the whole, through the whole thing? Um, we, can, we can start. Tamar, do you want to read the first paragraph? Sure. The main role of symbolic anointment in the ancient Near East, aside from its cosmetic, therapeutic, and magical functions, was to ceremonialize an elevation in legal status. The freeing of the slave woman, the transfer of property, the betrothal of a bride, 
and the deputation of a vassal, and in Israel the inauguration of a king, the ordination of a priest, and the rehabilitation of a leper. These cases indicate that in Israel as opposed to the other parts of the Near East, symbolic unction took place in the cult but not in legal proceedings. The implication of anointing as a sacred rite is that the anointed one receives divine sanction and that his person is inviolable. Um, actually, let's keep going because I think the next paragraph. In Israel, anointment conferred upon the king the spirit of Hashem, that is, his support, strength, and wisdom. The anointment of the high priest, however, served an, an entirely different function. It conferred neither Hashem's spirit nor any other divine attribute. Moses, for example, transferred his powers by hand-leaning to a spirit-endowed Joshua. But when he transferred the high priest's authority from Aaron to his son Eliezer, these spiritual features were conspicuously absent. In the story of Joshua's investiture, told by P, uh, Eliezer is declared the indispensable medium to ascertain the divine will, though tellingly not by virtue of any innate spiritual powers, but rather by his authority to work the oracle. This instance is a vivid illustration of the function of the high priest's anointment, which is otherwise designated by the verb sanctify. Indeed, the anointment sanctifies the high priest by removing him from the realm of the profane and empowering him to operate in the realm of the sacred, namely to handle the sanctums. Great. Um, so just generally, I wanted to bring this as a way to get at a broader scope of um, how this is functioning within um, within Vaikra, within the Tanakh, as opposed to maybe the ancient Near East more broadly. Um, and what Milgram seems to be emphasizing is that um, for the Israelites, there's like e the anointing process is a cultic thing and it's not a legal status thing. Um, and it's in order to sanctify Aharon as opposed to putting him in a new leadership position, um, like in a new legal status of some sort. And it's really um, in order to make him um, viable as someone who can do sacrifices. Um, do you want to take the last paragraph? According to P, the sons of Aharon were anointed with him. The respective ceremonies differ sharply. The sons were sprinkled after the sacrifice, whereas Aharon's head was doused separately for the entire service. Furthermore, whereas each succeeding high priest was anointed, the anointing of the first priest was never repeated. It was to be valid for their posterity. This concept has proved to be proved to be ancient, for it is found in the Tel El Amarna letters, in which a vassal stakes his authority at his grandfather's anointment. The difference between the status of the high priest and that of the ordinary priest explains the difference in the consecutory um, rites. The ordinary priest was born a priest, a status that is inherited and requires no special sanctification. The high priest, however, requires a special inaugural right to elevate him to this position. So anyway, just another modern position on why the distinction between the way that Aharon's sons are anointed or not anointed um, and the way that Aharon as the high priest is anointed. Um, so, any other thoughts on that before we close? Okay. All right. Thank so you. Home, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we're. we're done, so.